text is going to be Philippians chapter 2 this morning in the Black Bibles. It is on page 980. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma. Um, It's good to meet you if I haven't, and I'd love to talk to you in person if I haven't. Um, And let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. Father God, Lord, we ask you, your spirit, to be here and to do what your spirit does, and that is bring glory to you, to serve you by making you clear to us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts and our minds, Lord, through music, through um, encouragement, uh, encouraging conversations or connections, and through Uh, your word, and through this moment, and through this morning, to make much of you. And Lord, in so doing, exemplifying servant-hearted ministry, servant-hearted leadership before us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would um, not only show that, but also would empower that. That we'd be in partnership with your spirit to serve one another and love other people into loving. Lord, I know that that is a work that only can come from you, and so we ask you to do it. We give this time to you, and we are expecting to see what you'll do with it. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are finishing out a series we've been in today, which has been just a look at our church and what we want you to think of when you come into these walls, and not only that, when you're outside of these walls, to see yourself as part of the church. And we've been saying week in and week out that there's ways to see church in which I come, I receive, and then there's also ways to see church as I come to be a part of giving, to be a part of ministry, to be a part of seeing the mission of the church move forward, and not just the mission, but also see those around us to be served and be cared for. And so we talked about this as a sense where, hey, we are all filled with the Spirit of God and all called to do the work of ministry. And a lot of us come into that being like, well, I mean, I don't, like, I don't feel like I have any unique giftings. And I mean, typically I just kind of think of like the pastors kind of do that. And I, I just kind of come and I receive some kind of like encouragement or faith fill up and everything. And I go out into my week. And I'm glad if that's true for you. But at the same time, the scriptures want so much more from what church is. To not be a thing where I just come and I receive, but rather I come 
not just to, to check boxes off and to get things filled up, but rather looking around the room and be like, man, how do I serve and love and be a part of growing together as one body with his people? And so we've been just saying, if you feel equipped or not, the good news is, is if you look through the scriptures, there's actually really common ways to do that throughout history, or throughout the scriptures, that, that don't look like you getting all the experience and having all the right answers. Rather, they look like, one week we talked about it, it just looks like praying and having the humility to admit that you don't have enough ability to do this on your own, asking God to help and allowing him to empower you to step into conversations, to step into relationships where you care and counsel and shepherd and serve one another. And then we said beyond prayer, it also looks like uh, obedience, that there's a call for us to align ourselves into the good life that God has designed and in doing so encourage others and also call others to aligning ourselves with what God has called us. And then uh, two weeks ago, we talked about passionate ministry uh, and not passion in like the sense of like I feel really uh, warm and fuzzy towards something, but rather passion is the original word, which was the capacity to suffer for something. If you're going to care for anyone, if you're going to love anyone, it's going to cost you something. And then coming on the heels of this, that was similar but a slightly different vein, is what we want to talk about today, which is, is servant-hearted ministry. That in order to care and minister for anyone, you have to be willing to serve them. That this is getting popular all throughout the uh, business world. There's entire books written on servant leadership, that any leader who's actually going to have an effect on anyone is going to serve. But in order to get into servant heartedness, we need to talk about glory and meaning because it's something that we all desire as humanity. We all long for glory, that everything, uh, all, all, all of us, you know, that's the reason that causes uh, Olympic athletes to get up and train for years for a competition that may last for 10 seconds. It's the same thing that when you see a kid on a basketball court shooting baskets that they're you can see into their mind, they're imagining scenarios where they're hitting game-winning shots, where they are given the ball with three seconds to go, and they're entrusted to hit a shot and have the crowd go wild. It's why many of you, when you sing, pretend to have a microphone in your hand because you are imagining not just singing the song, but actually performing and being in the presence of those who are experiencing the glory of you performing. And... It's why we get so excited about sports. Right now we're in the midst of football season starting and you have people that get really into their teams and whether you're in a football or another sport, I mean, whatever your team is, I mean, uh, you get noticeably more uh, happy if they do well. And I don't know if you're like me, but like I've had entire days and even weeks ruined by just my team completely blowing a game. And why do I get that identity so tied up into it? It's because that's exactly what's going on. My identity is in it. If the team does well, I feel like I have glory. I share in the glory with them. And if they don't do well, they represent me. They represent my city and they have stolen glory from me. And everybody I know wants some level of significance. It's why we work hard. It's why we leave jobs to start up new businesses. It's why we continue to strive towards something great. And I know we come here and be like, okay, we're supposed to lay that down though. We're supposed to come here and humble ourselves and lay down a desire for glory. And you're like, yes, I guess, kind of. I mean, that's, that's the message of Philippians, but not just that. I mean, I actually believe that desire for glory was given to you by God. That you are meant to desire greatness, God is simply going to say, in fact, in all throughout the Gospels, the 
disciples, the men who follow Jesus, are going to regularly have these discussions of, okay, which amongst us is the greatest? And Jesus always comes and, and he straightens them out, but he doesn't say, hey, none of you should desire greatness whatsoever. He says, no, you should desire greatness. It just doesn't look the way you thought it was. It doesn't play out in you becoming higher and higher. And actually, if you want to become great, you must become servant and slave to all. If you want to become great, which is a good thing, you just go about it the complete opposite way in which you have been. And so I want to just peer into uh, this idea uh, of greatness by becoming low, um, greatness by, by laying ourselves down. Um, because the fact is, is, as I've said, we've already desire greatness, but the fact is, is we distort our, uh, in our hearts uh, how we receive it. And you see that actually in Philippians 2. If you've closed your Bible, uh, open back up with me as I opened uh, uh, Philippians 2, which is, I believe, 980. There it is. You see the distortion of glory in our lives in verse 3. I'll start in verse 1 to give us some context. Paul writing to the Philippian church to encourage them. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that's this concept of the distortion of our hearts, of how we feel that we're going to get glory in those two words, selfish ambition and conceit. And the first one I want to break down is actually conceit, because conceit is, yes, a term for it, but actually there's other ways that people have, have translated that over time, and maybe a, a though less uh, common to our everyday vernacular, but maybe more accurate to what's going on, is the King James that's actually going to say, hey, do nothing out of vain glory. And vainglory, again, is not something, I mean, it's one word, and it's not typically a word that you probably used in the past week, and so let me define it for you and break it down by its two parts. Glory in the original language, in the Hebrew and the Greek, literally means weight. And we don't think maybe necessarily as glory as being weight, but at the same time, it, it does make sense if you think about it long enough. Uh, my wife recently, we, somebody was cleaning out their kitchen of like old pots and pans, and she asked for the pots and the pans, um, and I first didn't know why, because we have plenty of pots and pans. And these were like from the 70s. This was like from a grandparent. And uh, I asked, like, you know, why are we getting these? And it's because she said that, well, she'd read that kids like to play with real pots and pans and utensils because they have a certain weight to them. They have a certain meaningfulness to them. They have a certain amount of glory, so to speak. And so she got them for a sandbox so the kids could play with them. They do. They love them because there's something about them that feels real and weighty that toys don't have. They're light and flimsy. They don't have the same glory. And this idea of glory as being weight in our lives is, is also then they say vainglory. And so there's vain meaning emptiness or, or, um, uh, or, or something that is uh, without substance. And it's this concept that they're getting at that... that Paul says, hey, do nothing out of an empty gloriness that you experience. Because there's something in us that the reason we desire glory is because we feel like we were meant for more of it that, that has been taken from us. See, something happened at the fall of humanity. If you are familiar with the Bible, you know that when God made the world and he makes people, he makes all things good. And he makes them to be in relationship to him. And that's not just like, okay, we just like hang out and talk with God on the weekends. It's the fact that God, before time began, 
was one in three. It's the concept of Trinity, that God exists and has always existed as one unified God. The Lord your God is one, and he simultaneously exists as three, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the three persons of the Trinity are eternally in relationship to each other and internally into this place where the Father loves and honors the Son, who loves and honors the Spirit, who loves and honors the Father, and they're continually in this divine dance, some have called it. And they said that humanity was meant to join in the dance, that God has been eternally glorious, that there wasn't a point that he doesn't make people because he was needy and needed people to hang out with. But rather it was the sense of like, no, I have so much beauty and so much glory and there's such a love in the relationship that I experience in Father, Son, and Spirit that I desire to make creation to get overwhelmed with this dance and to experience all of my glory with me. But then we sin and, and humanity decides that we want to be our own gods. We want to call our own shots. We want to define what's good and best for us. And in doing so, we walk away from this dance, from this divine glory that we were meant to be wrapped up in, that we were meant to be overwhelmed in, that we were meant to be drenched in at all times. And instead, we find ourselves asking the question, am I enough? It's the question that has probably animated you several times this week, maybe several times today. That as you work hard and drive to be more successful, as you desire to be liked, as you desire to be, have your contributions to a conversation be considered and to be thoughtful and, and desire to have others deem you as important, it is this driving, animating desire that am I enough because there's something deep in your soul that doesn't feel like you are. I remember I said to someone at one point, you know, I don't know that my goal is really for people to like just, uh, just simply look at my life and, and, you know, see that I have all these things. I, I, I want them to be envious of me. I want people to be envious of me because if they're envious of me, then maybe it shows that my life is really worthy of envy. It's worthy of people looking at and desiring after. Because in I look at my own life, I go from person to person to person. Uh, one author put it like this. Lewis Smedes who's a Christian author. He says, every time you meet a new person, you're unconsciously wondering, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? And Paul says, out of that, you're driven into selfish ambition, which is only brought up in, in one writing before the New Testament, and it's Aristotle in his book on politics. And he talks about, like, politicians selfishly ambitioning and campaigning for themselves, which, I don't know, is comforting to me that every time I think about how polarized our politics are, that at least it's been going on since 400 years before Christ. It's actually been pretty rough. So uh, not that there's not specific things that I'm praying for and I think that are rough and, 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 and need to be worked out in our politics now, but still, it's, it's kind of been a, a, a long-going thing. And, and he says, like, hey, you work out a selfish ambition and it moves you towards rivalry. And you can see this in your relationships because how many of us, when we hear someone's good news we feel upset about it. Like, not like deeply, but there's just something that happens when somebody gets a promotion or somebody gets engaged 
or somebody has a child and it immediately puts you in a place to thinking through of where am I in relation to their good news? And maybe I feel jealous because I don't have what they have or maybe I just have a sense where, man, think good things are happening for them. It's not like they're an enemy. They might even be a friend, but there's just something in me. Or maybe you're on the other side. You hear bad news for someone, somebody that you care about, and it just on some level, I don't know about you, but my twisted heart sometimes can just have a point where I'm like, I feel better that other people are experiencing some level of brokenness in this world. That everybody's life on social media looks really good and mine doesn't always feel that way and I'm just glad to know that somebody else is struggling on some level. It's this level of rivalry that comes from a sense of having a glory emptiness about ourselves. Mere Christianity, a book by C.S. Lewis, talks about this concept. He calls it pride because that's ultimately what he is. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people around us uh, are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Because glory or success or all things in this world work like a pyramid. You have to scale up to move up a level. You need to work hard or you need to be given fortune so that you can move from the bottom to the next tier to the next tier. You become upwardly mobile. You work up or you're a low person on the totem pole and then you move up to higher levels as you go along. And as you do, more and more people are put underneath you to support you. So eventually if you work hard enough, if you get up high enough, you will be at a point in the pyramid where all these people are underneath you and they support your weight. And the problem is, is you can get to the very top and it will not satisfy. I always look at certain people's lives when I'm in my point of like sitting there trying to evaluate, am I enough? And I look at people who I think on some level they must have made it. They must have achieved the level of glory that we all long for. And one of those people I certainly would have thought, um, and I've used this quote before, I just think it's really impactful to my life um, because of who it was. Uh, I, as a child, loved Michael Jordan. At one point, I wanted to legally change my name to Michael Jordan, and uh, my parents wouldn't let me. Then when I got of age, I kind of sobered up and realized that that could be a lot of problems in life and just confusion. So either way, I went ahead and stuck with Kent. And um, in the point, though, of desiring to be named after Michael Jordan, it's because he was the definition of greatness for a generation. That we watched him with the flu drop over 35 points in a finals game. We watched him on his, what should have been his last walk off the court, hit the game-winning shot. Uh, and then he had that whole weird thing with coming back with the Wizards. But most of us just blocked that out of our mind to remember the gloriousness of him continually winning championship, the five-peat repeat with the Chicago Bulls, and continually seeing him in a level of godlike glory and fame. And then a few years ago, an article uh, with him turning 50, it deals with Jordan struggling with his life post-basketball. And it talks about his struggling with his own mortality. It says this, most people live anonymous lives. And when they grow old and die, any record of their existence is blown away. 
They're forgotten, some more slowly than others. But eventually, it happens to virtually everyone. Yet for a few people in each generation who reach the very pinnacle of fame and achievement, a mirage flickers, immortality. They come to believe in it. Even after Jordan is gone, he knows people will remember him. Here lies the greatest basketball player of all time. That is his epitaph. When he walked off the court for the last time, he must have believed that nothing could ever diminish what he'd done. That knowledge would be his shield against aging. There's a fable about returning Roman generals who rode in victory parades through the streets of the capital. A slave stood behind them, whispering in their ears, all glory is fleeting. Nobody does that for professional athletes. Jordan couldn't have known that the closest he'd get to immortality was during that final walk off the court. All that can happen in the days and years that follow is for that shining monument he built to be chipped away, eroded. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years, since retiring for the third time, he's been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions, creating distance. Nobody has extended to a level of greatness in his field like Jordan. You cannot acquire enough glory to fill the vacuum in your heart. You were not made to find it by continually getting higher and higher on the pyramid. You can find yourself at the top with everyone below you and find yourself just to have a flicker of immortality only to have it slowly eroded to find out that it is empty. Conversely, there is a way to, Jesus says, achieve glory. He says it looks completely on the opposite of where we go after. It looks like pushing down the sickness that is pride, that is this sense to achieve glory for myself and rather find it through opposite means. Uh, let's pick up in our text, pick up where we left off in verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to the, his own interests, but to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says that all of a sudden, I should say this before, the meter at verse 6 starts changing in a way that, that looks different than the rest of the book of Philippians. It's because most theologians believe that Paul is quoting a hymn or a poem or something that already existed. It's because he's trying to get at a theological reality that he can't just bullet point out, but he just needs to communicate through poetry. And he talks about, hey, Jesus, though being in the form of God, and people say, well, okay, so we talk about Jesus being God, but maybe he's not God. I mean, Paul right there says he's in the form of God. But that, again, it's a bit of a translation issue. We translate the word form as like the outward shape. Okay, he looked like, you know, he looked like he was God, but maybe not really. But their word for form was more about an internal reality, that there was something inside of Christ that it's not just something, that the very nature and essence of who he was is God, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, 100% both. It is meant to be inexplainable. 
And it says that though he was fully, is in the form of God, he did not consider some, uh, equality with God as something to be grasped. That it's the image of, I don't know, like Black Friday, the, well, at least what used to be Black Friday before Black Friday just became Thanksgiving night, and eventually it will probably just become Thanksgiving morning. But either way, there was that point where people lined up after Thanksgiving all throughout the night to run through the stores and gnaw each other's wrists off for an Xbox. And as they did, they would both be holding on to one and grasping onto it because if they got there first for the special price, this was theirs and they could hold on to it. And it's that same image that Jesus is saying, hey, it's not that he tried to grasp onto something that he just was trying to make his, is that what was truly his, Godness, the fact that before Jesus steps into time and space and, and reality, that he is in all security and all pleasure and all comfort and all joy being worshipped eternally by legions of angels, which doesn't hit us because we think of angels as like fat cherubs who are precious moments dolls. And, and really what an angel, if you look in the scripture, every single time a single angel shows up, People fall on their face because they feel like they're going to die. And one of these creatures who apparently would cause us to fall on our face and and beg for mercy, there's legions upon legions all worshiping Jesus in all eternity. And he says, I don't feel like I need to grasp this for my own advantage. Rather, I give it up. And he steps into humanity. It means that Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be anxious. He knows what it's like to struggle and to go through puberty and to find yourself hungry and tired and like you don't have enough time. He knows everything you've experienced. He knows what it's like to struggle with temptation, except because he didn't submit to it, it was a lot harder. Like if you start, if you're in a river current and you just start floating down current, it gets a lot easier. But if you continue to fight against current, it's a whole lot harder. I always have this concept like, well, Jesus struggled temptation, but it was easier for him. Not the way I see it in the scriptures. And so he knows what it's like to be human as he submits himself. Gary Brashears, as a theologian, says he lays down the God card. He remains fully God, don't get me wrong, but he becomes completely fully human. Not only that, he becomes a servant. He grabs a towel and he washes his disciples' feet. If you've been around church, you've heard the story of John 13 tons of times right before the Passover, which was the point which Jesus would be crucified. That night, he grabs a water basin and starts washing disciples' feet. But just to try to continue to put meat on this so it doesn't just go in the category of over-familiar with you, I mean, to wash feet was the most menial task. There were laws in certain cities against slaves shouldn't even be forced to wash people's feet. I mean, in today's world, people have weird things about feet. Relatively clean to if you were wearing sandals with no dirt roads, walking through dirt and excrement and sweat in the Middle East, And man, even now, even in the current world, if someone tries to wash my feet, I feel a vulnerability there. But Jesus, being the creator of all things, washes the feet of his own creation. 
That's why when people talk about me, and I just feel like the Bible's made up, I point to stories like this and be like, nobody makes things up like this. People have invented gods. We have gods of the Roman gods. We have the Greek gods. And they are sitting on Mount Olympus and living fat with servants. And they use humanity to serve themselves. There exists in no myth a God who shows up and performs the menial tasks of slavery. Because you see Jesus stepping out of Godness into humanity, not just humanity, but slavery, and he becomes obedient even to death. It says not only just death, but death on a cross, which is interesting. Up to this point, the poem that Paul's been laying out, he's been saying like everything in three stanzas. And all of a sudden in this one, at this point, he makes a fourth stanza. That the believe Paul added this idea that he becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Which, again, to kind of get us away from just the nestitized view of a cross, because for us it's jewelry, for us it's, it's a marquee sign, but to remember, they lived in an honor-shame culture, which meant that they desired honor above all things, that you have honor for yourself, honor for your family, and conversely, what you run from at all costs is shame, not poverty, not death that wasn't your biggest fear, but rather being shamed. And the cross was the most shameful way to die, that there were laws against Roman citizens being crucified except for highest of treason. In fact, the word cross at Paul's day and age, what people believe, theologians believe, was probably a swear word. It was one to mention it would cause discomfort. This is a bit overly crass, so apologize for going there, but I heard someone quoted once and I thought it was helpful. They said, when you see the cross, you need to see the condom of the pedophile or the hood of the Ku Klux Klan member. They said, it is something that should viscerally move in us a place of disgust. And Jesus comes from God into humanity as a servant and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's interesting is during this time and day, they had um, what they called cursus honorum, which was essentially upward mobility. It was the same concept we have of the pyramid, of you work hard if you're a slave, and you could earn some money in their form of slavery, and then maybe you could buy your freedom and then eventually become into a humble worker, and then maybe if you worked hard at that, you could step up into becoming uh, a lord of one who owned property and owned other slaves, and then maybe eventually if you worked hard enough at that, you could become one who becomes noble, who becomes a senator of the Roman world. And what's interesting is a historian reads these verses. They notice that Paul is explicitly trying to show that Jesus actively participated in downward mobility. He starts as God who becomes stepping out of humanity to become human and not just human, a servant or slave and not just obedient and and submitting himself to his creation and students but submitting himself to death, even death on a cross. It's meant to redefine honor and glory because then Paul's going to go on. It shows, hey, this is what God does. He says, hey, for everyone who's fighting and clawing to get a little bit of this last little bit of glory, rather Jesus goes down the pyramid. He receives 
not just uh, downward momentum, but also he's crushed under the, need of, uh, the weight of everyone. In verse 9, he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's why we're here today, and you don't know that much about Alexander the Great. And maybe there's some of you who don't even really know the great things about Michael Jordan, but yet you can't walk through a town right now and see a corner without a building with a cross on it because God said that the way that the person who became the greatest in all of the world became that way is by completely moving themselves down on behalf of others. And he says, hey, do you want to achieve greatness? You want to achieve what you are truly meant to be? Then empty yourself for another. It's the idea of loving people into loving. There's a documentary out right now um, that was in theaters and was kind of a surprise uh, money drawer for documentaries on Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. And uh, it follows him as he puts together his PBS show. And you learn he actually was an ordained P, uh, Presbyterian minister. But instead of planting a church or being a, uh, a pastor of a church, he instead decides to um, begin this show for PBS. And they said he did everything opposite of the time. He said, like, media at that point, even then, was getting faster and faster and getting more attention-grabbing. And he intentionally was very slow and very gentle because he wanted kids to get a very simple and very clear message that they are loved just the way they are. And he said he regularly sat there and preached to kids. And, and they said it was interesting. I heard somebody commenting about it, and he said it was in the midst of the 60s and 70s and 80s when the, the height of the show was. He said it was right when no-fault divorce was kind of really picking up, and he said he, this person commenting was like, I could only imagine a child whose parents are going through a divorce who, like, life is chaotic and painful right now, and they just don't have a sense of what's up and down, and they sit in front of the TV, and they have someone who says, hey, you're loved just the way that you are. In fact, there was actors on the show. Every actor who encounters Fred Rogers as they interview them, they say that he loved them in such a way, they say they, he loved me into loving others. There's an NPR interview with the man who played the police officer in which they said um, he was an African-American man. He was asked to play a police officer, and he said at first he was really uncomfortable by it. He was just uncomfortable by the fact of, of having to portray police officers. He said he, you know, he and many African-Americans sometimes had just a sort of just view of, of authority and police authority, and he had, was no exception to that. But he said, you know, Fred asked him to do this role, and he continued to, um, they said one time, and this was in the midst of, of the civil rights movement, they said that uh, Mr. Rogers is sitting in the episode and he's sitting in a hot tub and he's, he's just putting his feet in the hot tub. And then the officer comes in and, and, and tells him, and he gives him some news. And this was just a line they had in the show. And then Fred Rogers didn't tell him he was going to do this and didn't, I don't believe told anyone on the set. And he says, hey, could you come and could you put your feet in the hot tub with me? And this was a big deal at this point. I mean, again, this is in the middle of civil rights going on. You didn't share water in, in, in mixed race. They said, hey, could you come and put your hot tub in with me? And he says, not telling him that he was going to do this again, Fred Rogers begins, he grabs a towel and begins to wash this man's feet. He was making a very clear message. And he said, that man, uh, that, who was the officer, I forget his name right now, I wish I could say it, but still, the officer, after that, he said, at the conclusion of the filming of that episode, 
he went up to Fred Rogers and he said, hey, I noticed today when you said, hey, I, I like you just the way you are, you were looking at me. And Fred Rogers says, I've been saying that to you now for over 10 years, but today you finally heard me. At the end of the documentary, they ask all the people being interviewed, hey, who loved you into loving? And one by one, you see the people start to break down in tears because they start thinking about the acts of a man who loved them into loving others. I think about a friend of mine um, who, he said he was, uh, he's, you know, a, a little bit older than I am. He's got a family and, and an okay job. I mean, it's a job that pays for, uh, you know, his family to live and everything. But he said he was talking with um, one of his friends recently from his high school. This was a guy who had gone to New York, had gone really, become really successful, uh, and had, had made a name for himself in the city. And he said he was just called up my friend, and he, he was talking to him. He said, hey, like in high school, you had so much promise. You had so much talent. I don't know anyone more talented with you. And now you're still living in our hometown, and you have a modest job. You're completely wasting your life. And I just remember as I heard my friend, like, recounting this person over the phone, telling him that his life had been a waste, and I thought about how many people had been served by this man, me included. How many of us had been encouraged by this man? that there was no one I could think of in my, in my life that was worth more emulating as he regularly would pick up his phone at all times when I called to encourage me, to care for me, that he would say regularly, let me know if I can serve you in any way. And then he would actually do it. He has a theory that he said oftentimes, he says, when you ask people to serve them enough, they won't tell you what they want you to do for the longest time, but eventually they'll give you a test to see if you actually love them and you need to pass that test. And he passed that test with so many people. I mean, all the people around this man. I, I, I've seen people that have come out of horrific divorces come near to this man. I've seen people who have um, come through battered experiences in their families or even in ministry. People come out of ministry sometimes really battered up and abused and they come near to this person and he makes them life-giving again because he gets down and he serves them and he loves them and he loves them into loving others. There's an important crux in our thinking, though, right here. And it's, you can look at the verses in Philippians, and you can see Jesus as, okay, Jesus did this for me, so I had better ought do this for other people. And there's something true to that, I suppose. But if that's true, if you're just trying to love out of a sense of duty, because Jesus did it for you, well, I need to now go show that I... I was good enough, then you will always run out of gas. You will never be able to sustain long periods of, of serving and loving other people on that sort of motivation. But if you see, in fact, that Paul writes this to the Philippians, not just to say, hey, Jesus is your good moral example, but rather Jesus did this for you that all of us find ourselves completely empty for glory in our lives and we, every person we meet becomes a person in our scheme to try to make ourselves feel like our life is worth it, but it will never fill the vacuum. But that's not to say that the vacuum is not filled. The vacuum is filled by us recognizing and holding on and gripping the fact that the God of the universe, the one who is the most honorable name in all of history and all of eternity and all universality, 
the name above all names, steps into eternity to do away with death and sin, all of that which separated us from him, and that he loves us so much, he happily takes on everything that keeps us separate from him, that he buys us back and gives us life again. It's, I've used this again. I feel like I'm using a bunch of old examples here from previous sermons, but whatever, I feel like they apply. Uh, the musical Les Mis is the story of the first character you meet and the character you follow most clo- closely is a character named Jean Valjean. And he's a criminal. You actually start the plot of the play or the, uh, the musical or the, the movie or, or the book, if you've been uh, that courageous. Uh, you, uh, you start the story following Jean Valjean, who's a man who is released from prison. And it says that prison hardened his heart. And he's given, upon, upon his release, yellow papers that he has to show to everyone to say, I'm a criminal, I'm a criminal. And so as he goes around looking for a job, uh, he has to show him the papers and typically he's turned down. And then as he looks for a place to stay, he has to show him the papers. But eventually one night, uh, as he's just looking for a place to stay so he doesn't have to sleep on the street again, he comes to a Catholic church and the priest comes and he says, yes, you can come in. He shows him the paper, he says, I have to show you this, I'm a criminal. And he says, yes, but you here are welcomed in as a part of our family. And then he says that he brings out the fine silver for this man, for this criminal. And he uh, brings out the food and they give him everything that they give everyone else and they treat him with love and kindness. And they say, first, Jean Valjean, like he's being this criminal, he just doesn't know how to handle it and so he freaks out and he takes the silverware. Uh, he even punches the priest on the way out and he runs out into the night. And the next day, he's, he's caught by the police. He's brought back get the silver that he's holding has the marks of the church. And so they bring it back and they say, hey, the police bring him to the priest who now has a big black eye from being punched out from Jean Valjean the night before. And he says, hey, this guy has some silver and he says that, that you gave it to him, but just tell us the word. He's a criminal. We'll put him back in jail and this will probably be the last chance for him. And the priest says, no, I, I, I did give it to him. He says, not only uh, that, but actually you forgot the candlesticks as well. And he goes and he gets the silver candlesticks, the silverware, and he puts it in the back and he gives it to him. And the police now say, well, you're not pressing charges. There's nothing we can do. And so they go on their way. And Jean Valjean at that moment is like stunned. Like here's a person that he has harmed. Here's a person that showed him grace and in return he gave him pain and that he stole from who is now giving him more. And the priest says to him, hey, I have now bought your soul for God. I have used this silver to make you a giver of life. And there's something that happens in Jean Valjean in that moment. It says he goes out and he wrestles with grace for the very first time, somebody giving him something that he does not deserve. And then the next time you see Jean Valjean, he has become a respected person in the community. And he begins taking on the troubles of his factory workers. One woman who is dying as she uh, gives birth to her daughter, he takes that daughter and he raises her as his own because now he becomes a giver of life. Because everybody who wrestles with grace, the fact that God comes in this world to love you, to take away your sin upon him on the cross, to take away your death and your shame, to go beneath and to hold you up and to go lower and to be crushed by the weight of all humanity, when you wrestle with the fact that you are that loved, that grace received always explodes out of the soul to become grace extended. The way that you move out and become a servant, that you become the example of Christ, is not to 
work in his example, but rather to see the fact that he has extended grace to you and that grace received always explodes out to be grace extended. And so, as we typically do, I guess, before we just in a moment take of communion to have this moment where we remind ourselves that grace received, that the grace I receive on the cross, that if you are here and you are a Christian, you're one who believes that Christ has paid the full penalty for you, that his death on the cross was not just an example of servanthood, but was also the payment for your sin and for death so that now God looks at you as pure and spotless, that he sees you as perfect, not because you are, but because Jesus is. Then I invite you to come forward and take communion in a moment. Before we do, I just want to just bring this down and bring this practical into our time, because again, we've been talking about this as a church, been saying, hey, this is what we want to see for our people. We want to see come a church that is just radically prayerful for one another, that is willing to um, conform our lives to what Jesus said so that we might um, example the, the life that God has designed for us before each other and before this world, that we might be willing to sacrifice one another and that we might become servants for each other. And so I just want to put before you one really tangible way that we've been talking about week in, week out, is just to come here with the eyes to serve other people. You can do that in formal ways. I mean, we talk about, hey, you can come and you can serve kids. And that's just not, I mean, it's never a fun and attractive job to come and serve kids week in, week out. People always think it is, like, oh, I love kids. And then you do it for like two weeks. And then you're like, you know what? Um, I love the idea of kids. And because the fact is, is, is to come and to love and to change diapers and to read a lesson and to communicate graces of the gospel to children sometimes can be really rewarding and sometimes it can be really hard. But regardless, I, I see day after or week after week people come in, a part of our children's ministry who say, hey, I want to come and I want to partner with parents to extend the gospel to these kids. Or you can come and be a part of hospitality. You can come and show up and look for people who look like, hey, just set up chairs, set out Bibles, set out coffee, and then look for people who look like, hey, man, I don't think that they know anyone. I'm going to extend myself. I'm going to be the one who extends myself, who invites them. You don't have to be on the hospitality team, by the way, to serve our church in that way. You can be anyone looking around and saying, hey, I want to connect. I want to serve. I want to invite. I want to make people feel the hospitality of feeling welcome here. And there's other teams, but if that's just what you get of like, hey, we need you to serve the church, that is a really small vision of what we want you to do. Because I told people, man, what I want people to come out of the series is that they are willing to pass the test when people give them an opportunity to serve in their missional community. When people say, hey, this is what I really need, they show up and they do it. Or maybe they preempt people's needs. They look to see and they look to to care for families and, and moms who look like they're struggling. They look to to again, extend themselves. They look to pray for each other and serve each other in prayerfulness. They look to help each other when, when people say, hey, I'm moving, and there's that sense where nobody, again, likes to help people move, but they break down each other's schedules, and they look to serve and care for each other in their missional communities across this church, across the city, and across this neighborhood. And so this is, not, this is really high and lofty theology, but ultimately it breaks down to something really tangible and really gritty, and that's loving and serving people in the church, outside of the church. And again, we don't do this because it's just Jesus' example. We do this because we have been loved into loving other people. 
And again, we take this moment here to reflect upon that in communion. I ask you to come forward after a moment of reflection. If you are a Christian, to come take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it in the cup and remind yourself that Jesus comes to suffer and die on the cross, not just to show you he's a good moral teacher, but to be the salvation for your sins, to be the payment of your sins, to serve you where you could not serve yourself, and that is being righteous enough to pay for all sin and to defeat death. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, if that's not your belief, we just ask you to stay in your seat. We're glad you're here. We'd love to serve you. We'd love to care for you. We'd love to talk to you more about this, but this is a family meal, and so we feel no obligation to hop up into it. Let me pray for us now. Father God, I pray again for you to continue to mark us in our church in these ways. Continue to be um, moving in us through your spirit that we would become servant-hearted people. Lord, again, not to earn salvation, but out of the joy of grace and out of salvation. Lord, because we have been so affected by grace, we become life-giving people. We become those who have been loved into loving. And so, Lord, do that in us. Move us in this church and outside these walls. Lord, uh, let even this act of communion be a reminder for those um, who have been working hard after their own salvation to come before the cross of a God who offers it freely, not based off of their blood, not based off of their record, but off of your son's. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>